This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. So how many of us have had friends that are lifelines or define us or make us better or make us safe? And what happens when there are hiccups or dry periods or even breakdowns? Uh, Do we move on? Do you recommit? And can you resurrect the spark? Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close, answers these questions and raises new ones and reminds us that friendships just make life better. So damn straight, it's worth it to make them work. Our authors joining us tonight are Aminatu So, who's a writer, an interviewer, a digital strategist, co-founder of Tech Lady Mafia, and was named Forbes 30 Under 30 in tech. Ann Friedman is a journalist and contributor to New York Magazine, the Los Angeles Times, and The Gentlewoman. And every Friday, she sends a weekly email newsletter to subscribers. Together, they are the podcast host extraordinaires of Call Your Girlfriends. So please join me in welcoming Aminatu So and Ann Friedman. Welcome. Thanks for having oh, us. My pleasure. So um, you are both at a Gossip Girls party, and there's an instant spark of connection. And it wasn't accidental that you were both at the party. A mutual friend had an inkling that that would happen. What was it, do you think, about each of you that made your mutual friend think, oh, these guys are made to be friends? I mean, that's such a good question. I, you know, I would say that we really need to give the most credit to our friend Dio because she um, is someone who is just always very generous with her network, whether it is for personal reasons or professional reasons. And she really is someone who is constantly matchmaking people. And so I, you know, I think that in her own kind of yenta, friend yenta way, she had <laughs> sensed that we, we definitely had some similar interests or, you know, that there were things about each other that we might really like. But I, I know that speaking for myself, having her say, there is someone else that you might like here is such a, was such a high endorsement, you know, and it also makes you feel, um, it makes you feel special that someone thinks that you should meet someone else that they know. And so I think that by the time Anne and I met, we were really ready to, we were ready to meet and we understood how significant it was. When I read about uh, your backgrounds, and I'm going to have you share a little bit about that. So Anne, one of the things that you say in the book is that among all the other, um, you have a long litany of compliments about Amanatu that, and one was that you saw her as a gateway to a global world. She had lived, you had lived on the same street, went to the same church. When you moved, I think you moved a few houses down. So Aminatu, what was it that you thought Anne was going to be a gateway to? What did you sense that was going to uh, enrich your life in that friendship? 
at that mo- at when you first met? I mean, when we first met, I remember she was just really funny and she was very, very smart, you know, and, and I think that uh, we write in the book that we, are, we really fell in love with each other's brains and I just, mm-hmm. I liked her ideas, I liked the, the way she organized her mind and when I got to know her better, I also really liked the sense of independence that she had and the mm-hmm. sense of, you know, like knowing who she was in the world and, and the space that she could take in the world. So uh, a, a lot of things, a lot of things. Yeah. And, and this is not to downplay Aminatu as like um, someone who has really opened up my world because she has, but I do think that's something that most good friends do for us is yeah. encourage us to think about new things or try things we haven't considered or embolden mm-hmm. us to follow um, something we might not have otherwise had the guts to pursue on our own without their encouragement. And so this idea of um, all great friendships being a gateway to um, an expanded version of yourself and your world is, um, I think has really been true for me, um, both definitely in this friendship, but also in, in other important friendships of my life. Yeah, and the thing that occurred to me is in the book, um, you mentioned that you're, you were both viewed as strong women. And what it made me think about is, I think you use uh, the language that you felt safe enough with each other to sort of shed that hard shell. And, you know, it seems to me friendships that expand you are first and foremost safe. How much of, how much of the fact that you were viewed one way but could be another way with each other was the was the sort of seed of a bond i I, well i'm thinking about your question about the difference between how we were perceived versus how we could act in the friendship i mean i find myself thinking about something that one of the experts we interviewed said to us which is that um, a lot of the ways that people bond in friendship are similar to their bonding patterns in other kinds of relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, the way they form attachments in romantic relationships or the way they are bonded to their families. And one of the criteria for feeling attached to someone is a feeling of safety, you know? And so it's almost, um, it is, it, it feels like a prerequisite, you know, not just that it be different than what you present to the world, but that whatever you're presenting to each other in the friendship feels um, feels authentic. Like the friendship is safe enough to let you be authentic, I think is a criteria that, that, um, that is bigger than just our friendship, but that certainly applies to us. Um, that, that sense of safety. But you know what, Anne, as you say that, of course it's true with any good relationship, right? That would be with a sibling, you know, a romantic partnership, even some discussions you might have with a parent. The other language that you use in the book is chosen family. Explain what you mean by chosen family. Chosen family is a term that is really rooted in um, in uh, queer studies, where um, you know for for a, for a long time, um, people who are from the LGBTQ community have used this term to talk about the families that they have formed because the families that they come from have not necessarily embraced who they were. Mm -hmm. And so we really borrow from this term because 
it is also true for us that we, you know, in, in a more privileged way, obviously, but have been able to recreate a sense of family with people that we are not um, biologically related to. And so Anne and I are very much chosen family for each other. You know, one of the things I thought about in, in looking at that term, at one point in your relationship, Anne decides to move to Los Angeles from the East Coast. And in the book, you talk about that it's not only that she left town, she was leaving her chosen family. And what it made me wonder about is that the fabric of a chosen family, is that somehow less adhesive when you make decisions like moving? In other words, people who are married make decisions to live apart for careers. But like, how did that feel, Aminatu, when, when Anne left? Did that feel like she was leaving your family? Did it, did you, were you annoyed about her doing that? Or were you happy because it was a big job she was going to? I mean, I don't necessarily agree with the premise of your question. I think that um, I, for example, definitely left my biological family to go to college and to, right. to live somewhere else. So people do leave their families for yeah. all sorts of reasons. Your example about the romantic relationship, that point is well taken. Um, and it is true. It's like in your, um, in those kinds of relationships, you, you have a conversation about what it means when one of you moves. And I think mm -hmm. that that is what differences was within friendship. There is just an expectation that, um, you know, you don't necessarily have that conversation because you have that conversation with your partner or perhaps with your parents. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but I, I, in our friendship, we did have that conversation and I wasn't annoyed or upset, but I, I was very sad that Anne would not be, um, would no longer be, you know, like in our cocoon of, uh, of living in DC. But at the same time, it was so clear that she needed to make this move. So like mm -hmm. any supportive family member, um, you know, you can hold both of those truths that you are sad that the day to day is going to change, but be very excited and happy for someone that they're pursuing something that, you know, ultimately will make them happier. You know, and, and to the same point, what do you see as the challenge or intersection to a big friendship when one or both of people in the friendship have a romantic relationship, either married or unmarried or whatever it is? Does it, does it change the, fabric of the big friendship? Does it enhance it? Does it take away from it? What do you think it does? I think that any big life change that happens for either person in the friendship is very likely to have an impact on the friendship, which is to say, you know, me moving, you know, one, one great example, but like also starting a very demanding new job or becoming a parent mm -hmm. or, um, or yeah, or, or entering into like a really serious romantic relationship. You know, these are all things that really change the time that we have, the kind of, you know, day-to-day -day living circumstances. Like, you know, a big life shift is likely to have all these ripple effects. And, um, and if you're really enmeshed in someone's life as, um, as one of their closest friends, 
it's pretty impossible to think that the friendship would not be affected in some way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, I don't think that necessarily means um, it's always a threat to the friendship. But I do think, and we write about this in the book, that um, it's a lot easier to weather changes like that if you're openly acknowledging the fact that this right. is something that is going to affect the friendship. Because I think one, one place where we have gotten into trouble is kind of both recognizing that something is changing in one or both of our lives, but not saying to each other, wow, it seems like this is really going to affect the way we keep in touch with each other or how much time we have for each other or who, who are the other people we spend our time with to, when we're together. Um, yeah. And being able to acknowledge that openly is something that you really have to be able to do if you're going to figure out how to weather it together and, and stay friends. Yeah. And I'm going to come back to that because I found the parts of the book where you talk about when it was working and when it was not working and how you bridge that is something that so many friends deal with with their in their lives where rather than do the hard work they sadly let the friendship wither because they don't know how to find their way back to the conversation so we'll come back to that I, there's a couple of things i want to cover before we get to that so you tell um a story in the book that I almost couldn't even believe about this pathetic man uh, that Aminatu uh, worked for, worked with. And, and it was a conversation about mentoring. So I'd like to hear um, from you about what that was, but what was the great benefit from that after that disaster? Um, I mean, I think you are alluding to um, the boss that I had who I'm like, I've had a lot of very bad male bosses. So take Which mediocre man. Yeah, yeah. which mediocre <laughs> <laughs> But um, I think that you are alluding to the boss who told me essentially that he did not have time to mentor me. And, uh, you know, and, and that was not an isolated incident, honestly, in my 20s. That was just one that I chose to write about. And... Um, and I think it's also not an isolated incident for a lot of women and a lot of yeah. people of color generally at work. And, you know, and, and some of that is, uh, happens because there, there is really not enough time to mentor everyone at work. Like, I, I really want to acknowledge that. And it is also true that it happens for very structural reasons, where when people are chosen or groomed for positions, a lot of times they end up looking like who the boss looks like. And if the boss is a white man, that is a, that's what happens. Um, but, you know, I think that for me, that actually like turned out to be, you know, fast forward a couple of years later, it actually worked out very well in my favor because it really forced me to realize that, um, you know, there would always be structural obstacles like that at work. And one way to overcome them would be to start creating bonds across my, um, across my peers. And this is something that Anne also believed. And before we knew each other, we were both in our own way doing that, you know, and, and, and now like a cornerstone of our working relationship and, um, you know, and of, and of who we are and of our community is this concept called shine theory that we, that we have coined that is essentially telling each other, I don't shine if you don't shine. It is a very clear rejection of competition among women and among marginalized people, but it is also uh, a real call to 
to collaborate together, you know, and to say, okay, like maybe everyone above us in the food chain doesn't have time for us, but if we pool all of our resources together, we can also start to create a network and some power that, you know, over the years is something that is really recognizable and powerful. Yeah. So it's a old girls network that you, that you nurture or a new girls network. Yeah, and I think that we really see it as powerful um, when it is about sharing power. And yeah. you know, like instead of instead of saying like, okay, how can I, um, how can I feel good about shoring up my own position? Sort of saying, what do I have to extend to people who are in a similar position to me, or maybe a few years, yeah. you know, behind on their career, and and really seeing that as very much worth it, um, and not just in a self interested way, but in a in as big as part of this bigger picture of us wanting to um, create more pathways to power for people who don't look like the traditional power players in most industries. Yeah, and it's you know part of it is I I I mean I've witnessed this is like having your own cheerleading team who, you know, you're going to fall down, you're going to pick yourself up because you've got people who believe in you and they're going to make another introduction or give you advice or do the things that give you confidence that you can do it. Yeah. Although I did yeah. love, this is totally um, out of sequence, but one of the stories I loved uh, Amanatu, when I thought about how independent you were, I loved when um, when you were a kid and you held a anti-war protest when the Iraqi war was on and nobody showed and you were like, that's fine. <laughs> I thought, it's fine. I, you, you were doing what you wanted to do. You made your point. Yeah, you know, and, and, and the same was, was true for Anne, who also as a as a kid was very much, we, we were not children who were interested in the opinions of other children about what we were doing. So um, it's really nice that we found each other later in life because, uh, you know, I really could have used an Anne when I was, um, when I was much younger. Yeah. So one of the things that I got a kick out of, you talked about friend webs and, um, you know, having friend webs and getting friends of, of friends of mine to become friends has been, you know, one of the most satisfying um, parts of my life. And I remember talking to Deborah Tannen about this uh, when I interviewed her um, for her book. Uh, you're the only, I think it was, you're the only one I can tell this to. And so it's this, we talked about how friends talk about their other friends' lives as a way to learn how to live our own lives. So, you know, if you're talking to another friend of yours and you're telling them about Anne figuring out a new job or whatever, where do you think the line is, or do you ever worry about the line between sharing another friend's life and it feeling like gossip? What do you pay attention to in, in telling those stories to each other? I, we write about the fact that we have often um, erred on the side of caution there and, and really tried not to talk about things. Um, mm -hmm. And 
I don't, I don't know. I think it can be, it can be a very, very circumstantial and a very much a case by case basis. You know, like um, one thing I think is if both parties are really um, showing up with good intentions and wanting the best for the friend that they're talking right. about, you know, sometimes that's very important. You know, it's a conversation about how do you support someone who you're both connected to, or how do you strategize about the fact that someone you both care about is struggling? Um, and, and, and to me, that feels very different than gossip, which is just right. saying, did you hear what happened to so-and-so full stop? It's not actually about, um, trying to, understand or um or show up and support that person and so i think i think that is a part of it um and but but i also think it's it's complicated and that that point i mean i had not um i don't remember that aspect of deborah tannen's book which we quote from a lot in our own you know she has a lot of mm -hmm. interesting things to say about friend friend dynamics but the idea that how you talk about something a friend is going through being a way you work out your own feelings and saying like um you know Oh wow! I found myself being kind of jealous of this thing that happened. Does that mean I want that? And having having yeah. you know the having the reason for discussing it really being more about you and less about just you know petty gossip. I think that um, those are the kinds of questions that um, that I try to ask myself now when when a third yeah. party comes up. Because and actually one of the things she talks about in the book, which I got a big kick out of, when the word gossip started it was about women having conversation and it was later that the connotation of gossip as like another way to be critical of women that it took on a negative quality mm -hmm. so what it, you know what Deborah Tannen talks about is some of what you're saying and that there's a difference between sharing stories that are meant to be positive about the person or helpful about the person and the kinds of stories that sound pejorative or schadenfreude or are meant to make you look better and them look badly um so she i i did like talk and when i saw your friend web um conversations but the other thing that i i thought was interesting and i hadn't read this before describe for us the Dunbar theory? Because I thought it was an interesting way to think about friend groups. Yeah, you know, Dunbar's theory is this, uh, it is this indication that you, it is not possible to have more than 150 connections with, um, with people. And, uh, you know, I, it sounds right to me because that sounds exhausting and a lot, yeah. but I think that when you look across a lifetime and the number of people that you know or how you know them or how you encounter people, it sounds a little less crazy. Yeah, and she talks about them in segments that you have people that are close in, you know, that you talk to all the time and the people that you see once or twice a year, but 150 even sounded like a lot to me. Sounded like a lot, but I wonder if we all make a list of everyone that you know that you could say as a friend yeah. at some yeah. point in your life. I wonder how close you get to that 150. You yeah, know? And, I think, I, and I think depending on your social circle, um, it's it's really easy to to reach that, especially because you know part of why we really wanted to write this book is because there's not really a precise vocabulary for how you mm -hmm. you know it, who is your friend. Your Facebook friend is a friend. Your 
friend from childhood is your friend and someone who I want to know for the rest of my life is also my friend. So the, the, the bonds can be very tenuous and we don't really have a way of being really precise about what we mean when we say that someone is a friend, you know, and there's also the truth of, um, there are people who would say that they're your friend, Roxanne, but would you say that you are their friend? And yeah. so, you know, I, I think that really confronting the fact that it's a word that we use very, um, loosely a lot of times and are not necessarily agreed on what the, you know, what is the criteria for having that person in your life is also true. Yeah. And you know, that brings up yet another element of it. And that is, what do you do with friendships that feel lopsided? Like they want a kind of relationship that you don't want with them? Or how do you decide which friends you are willing to do the hard work to stay friends with? How do you decide that, you know, the circumstances that made you friends are gone and you feel sad about it, but you don't want to do the hard work to keep that friendship? Because I think a lot of women struggle with that. You know, they end up with friends whose feelings they don't want to hurt. And yet, maybe there's something else going on and the friendship could be saved or maybe it shouldn't. How do you each think about that? Well, there aren't a lot of models for straightforward conversation yeah. about something like this. You know, I think that's something that we have been really painfully aware of at various points in our friendship. Um, you know, unlike a romantic relationship, if you know, if that's not going well, we kind of, we kind of understand that um, even if the people aren't doing it, you probably should be having a straightforward conversation about your mismatch and expectations. And, um, and I think there is also, um, you know, just some conflict avoiding behavior, to be honest, that both mm -hmm. of us have had in this friendship that um, I think a lot of people who are socialized as women are not really interested in having a direct conflict or confrontation when there isn't a really pressing issue when it's more of like a slow a slow fade away yeah um and and i don't know and i think it can be hard too i mean one reason why we talk a lot about the work that goes into a friendship is often these are not choices that we make you know we don't wake up and say okay you know what over the next six months i'm gonna phase out roxanne we're not gonna be friends anymore i'm gonna do, i'm mm -hmm. gonna slowly walk it back and that's not really how it happens you know you kind of notice yeah. that um, you're not feeling as connected anymore, or maybe you feel like you're the one showing up all the time and the other person hasn't actually returned a phone call or made an effort or been there for you in a significant life moment. And, um, and right now, there is not a lot of encouragement to say like, oh, maybe you should bring that up directly with that person and mm -hmm. see what happens, you know? Um, there is, there, the really the only model we have is to just kind of slink away and not really deal with it. And, and if, they, if, if the friend who you're moving away from comes back and really says, hey, what's going on here? Let's address it. Then maybe you'll have a conversation. But um, I think we're trying to make that more of the expectation that if you have been close to someone for a long time, if you've really made an emotional investment in each other, that um, you, know, you should maybe think about trying to initiate that conversation mm -hmm. because you know, when we when we went to went back to write about what made both of us want to stay in our friendship after um, after a really difficult period where we weren't in much contact with each other, some of the answer was about the history we had together. You know, we really had put in a lot of time and investment, and um, some of it was about the fact that we shared mutual friends and we shared a community and we shared 
values, you know, really, it really made us both look at everything that was there, that you can't just snap your fingers and regenerate mm -hmm. with any old person. And so I think, you know, sometimes it might lead to a more formal ending to the friendship. And other times it's a real call to action and saying like what we have is special and it's worth fighting for. Mm -hmm. So talking about difficult conversations in the book, you discuss how Wesley Morris calls the calls, describes something as the trapdoor of racism. And, and what you write in the book, for people of color, some aspect of friendship with white people involves an awareness that you could be dropped through a trapdoor of racism at any moment by a slip of the tongue or a campus party or in a legislative campaign. So what was that trapdoor incident for both of you? We write about in the book an incident where um, after not having lived in the same city for for a long time, I am visiting Los Angeles where Anne lives and I'm invited to a party at her house that is um, a birthday party for someone else that she is hosting. And at this party, I notice that everyone there is... Um, is white and that is not the reality of what my friendship with Anne had been before and so um you know i i did not we did not talk about it that night but um certainly like months later did and it was an interesting gateway into talking about other racial issues that had cropped up in our friendship and in the book you talk about that people would have presumed given the degree of your friendship that you would have already discussed these issues, but you hadn't? Well, we, I think we had talked about race as it related to what's happening in the world or maybe experiences that Aminatu had had um, that she would tell me about or things that I had witnessed. Um, but we really had not confronted head on what happens when um, in our friendship, I fail to recognize, acknowledge, or otherwise step up and say like, oh, I actually see that this is really painful for you and what's happening right now is related to race. And I think one reason why we chose that party to write about is, is not because it, is, it was a watershed moment in our friendship or it was like the, the biggest thing we've ever had to overcome, but because it really represents the almost mundane seeming way that these issues crop up between friends of different races, which is to say that um, it feels almost like um, not, not big enough to talk about, even though it clearly mm -hmm. was big enough because it made, it made my dear friend feel very isolated and not welcome in my home, which is, of course is worth talking about, you know? Um, and so I think what we're really hoping to do by, by quoting Wesley Morris and talking about the trapdoor, we love that metaphor because it's by nature hidden. You know, you don't mm -hmm. see, you don't walk into the room and say, oh, there's a hole in the floor. Like what happens is you're, you're caught by surprise a little bit and, and how do you deal with it, um, you know, is really, is really where we wanted to go from there. And, you know, the other, the other uh, piece, you had a, a, a couple of lines from a poem of Pat Parker that I was very struck by, and I've been thinking about it a lot. So the poem is for the white person who wants to know how to be my friend. And the lines are, the first thing you do is forget that I am black. 
Second, you must never forget that I'm black. Ideally, what does that look like in real life if somebody is doing that with that guidance? I mean, I think it looks different for, for a lot of people, but I, you know, I think that the, one of the, the, the truth of that poem is that everyone just wants to be seen for themselves in any relationship that you are in. Like, I would like to believe that in my relationship with Anne, I'm Aminatu, I come as Aminatu every day, I'm an individual, and Anne is Anne, and we are relating on this very personal level. But the truth is that um, everything that is wrong in the world will also manifest itself in our relationship. And so um, racism is something that will manifest itself in our relationship. Sexism is something that will manifest itself in our relationship. And they're all things that we have to learn how to talk about. And so when I think about that poem, um, you know, as a Black person, it really is a uh, that tension between wanting to just be yourself and also realizing that, um, you know, every system that shapes racism also shapes the relationships that you're in. And for white people, particularly who are in relationships with black people, it is important to know that. Like, of course mm -hmm. you want to know them just as this person, but um, it would be foolish to not be vigilant to the fact that, um, you know, white supremacy can also live in the relationship of two people who love each other very much. Yeah, that was a great, I was so happy you had that in the book because it feels like a good, it's a good frame to keep reminding ourselves about. So I, you know, thank you uh, for putting that chapter in and that piece in. Um, so now let's get, you're humming along, everything's going great, you, you know, you've got your podcast, um, which is an instant uh, hit, and at what point was your public relationship, you know, chatty, smart women talking about, you know, in big issues, small issues, girlfriend issues, what what was it that happened when all of a sudden your real relationship and your public relationship looked like they were on two different planes? How'd you come to realize that? And then how'd you even begin to address it? Oh, God, if only it had been all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, something so yeah. big that neither of us could ignore it. It was, you know, it really was um, a series of moments where we just missed each other, you know, where one of us um, felt hurt by something the other person said, um, but didn't bring it up or didn't know how to bring it up and then just kind of carry that little bit of hurt. And the other person was oblivious. Or when one of us was like, you know what, I don't really feel close anymore to her. Like, let me try to make an overture. But then the other person missed it as, as, as being like a, um, an effort to reconnect. And it just had this compounding effect where, um, you know, we were always very comfortable working together. Like there wasn't really a period of time where it felt so awkward between us or the, the, we had bad blood where we couldn't even show up and chat away for the podcast. You know, like one thing that's been true is that we have always been really interested in each other's ideas and always mm -hmm. able to kind of have a conversation about what's happening out there. And um, it really, it took a long time for us to recognize. And even then in different moments separately, that things were not keeping pace between the two of us and that the number of things we felt safe talking about with each other, that list had just gotten shorter and shorter and shorter. And so 
by the time we were able to say to each other, hey, it seems like things are not really great between us, um, they had already deteriorated kind of a lot. And, um, and we yeah. found it really difficult to just go away together or spend some time on the phone and, and start talking really honestly the way that we had in the early days of our friendship. You know, one of the one of the lines that came to mind when um, the two of you went to the spa with the hope that just having time together would remedy it, and I'm going to have you describe it. But in one of Alice Hoffman's books, um, there's a she talks about a a couple who's struggling in their marriage, and her line was. Uh, the wife saying that she felt like trying to get um, connected to her husband was like trying to climb a mountain of ice in her bare feet. And I, I, I loved that idea that, you know, you're trying, you're trying to get up the mountain, but you, you know, there's just like nothing that you can pick up on that's going to connect you. So tell us what happened when you went on your girl spot trip. Oh man, now I'm going to think about that image for, for a long time. <laughs> it's relatable. It's pretty good, right? It's so relatable, yeah. I know, I'm like, I feel, I was like, oh yeah, that feels, that sounds like it. Right? Um, yeah, you know, we, we, like Anne said, we had been going through this period of really missing each other and, and finally, like, discussed together that something was wrong. And, and that in and of itself was a relief. Like, okay, she feels as badly as I feel. It's not all in my head. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and then, and then we were at this point where we were just grasping at straws for how do you repair a relationship? Because um, I certainly did not know how to do that. And Googling, how do I repair my relationship with my friend was a very sad search results um, situation. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and I think that, you know, we, we thought that going away on this trip would, it, it, the stereotypical, you know, get your relationship back weekend. And we thought that all you had to do was show up together and then magically everything would be fixed. And instead what happened is that we were in this very beautiful place and it was very awkward between us. Mm. And we didn't know how to be together in the same room or to plan activities together or, you know, where do you start talking about things? And so a weekend that we went on with like very high expectations, I think ended up being very sobering because it was actually a reminder of how hard and tense our relationship had been over a lot of years. Yeah. So you make the unusual, I would say, decision to go into therapy. And how'd you go about making that decision? And what was that process like? I think it had become clear by that point that the intention was there, that we both really mm -hmm. wanted to stay friends. I mean, that's the whole, the whole point of us both showing up to that sad spa weekend was that we both wanted to make it work. We were, we're both trying to get up the ice mountain to, to take the Alice Hoffman metaphor. And, um, and it wasn't working, you know, like enough time had passed um, from when we first acknowledged that things were not great that we were like, we don't feel actually any closer. We don't feel like we're getting anywhere. And, um, you know, often when people feel like they're stuck in a bad emotional pattern, it's like therapy is one tool that you have yeah. to kind of get, get another person's insight 
to to prompt like new kinds of disclosures from both of you to try to um, to just change up the pattern that we developed. And I think um, you know we we write in the book that um, the fact that we were coworkers maybe made it easier for us to acknowledge, even though none of our problems were rooted in how we work together. There is a little bit of a precedent for coworkers or you know business co-founders to, to get coaching go. or exactly, and so it maybe made it a little bit safer um, that like you know marriage counseling wasn't the only counterpoint or like couples therapy in a romantic context wasn't the only um, point of reference we had, and so you know we did end up asking friends who had been to couples therapy to make recommendations. Um, and the therapist we ended up seeing eventually does, I think, mostly treat romantic pairs, but, um, you know, it was really important to us and we had to clarify at the outset that like, we are friends, you know, this isn't a work problem and we are not in a romantic relationship. And also we are really close friends whose intimacy has broken down and we want to fix that. And, um, you're you're right that it felt weird or it seemed kind of out there and we um we did not broadcast the news very widely that this Mm -hmm. is something that we were doing because it felt it felt strange and you know it's also worth saying here that um therapy is expensive and um it is not something unfortunately that everybody can afford to access when they hit a really a really big snag in an important relationship and so we're also very grateful that we um had the option at all and what did you learn? <laughs> Where do you even start? How much time question? do you have? Yeah, yeah I know. That's no. a big... <sighs> yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think to keep it succinct, I think that um, one of the things that is seems so very simple, and I honestly feel foolish and, and stupid saying this, is that we learned just how very different we were. Mm-hmm. Because to go back, you know, to your question about the Pat Parker poem, we had been so... Um, wrapped into all of the ways that we were the same that we had just never considered mm-hmm. the fact that we were actually incredibly different like we are different people on paper so it's actually nuts that we we think we are so similar um and you know and, and that was one thing and i think that the other thing too is um and you know and i think that this is something that a lot of people who go to therapy and particularly couples therapy will tell you is that you also end up just learning a lot about yourself You know, you learn about the relationship that you are in, but I think that it is very illuminating also to, to realize that, um, you know, we are all people who, who are changing constantly and are getting better at articulating what we want and need from our relationships and from the world and, and really being able to see that through how we are in a particular relationship is something that is very powerful. You know, the other the other thing that I thought was really striking is that in in the book in therapy, you talk about that when you're in a bad place in a relationship, the thing that's wrong you actually double down on. <laughs> um it, it described that because I think that happens a lot. You know, I it made me think of a, one of a, one of my friendships with a close friend, and I was thinking, well, we've been in a bad spot, and I've been thinking we've been aggravating it by doing the thing that's wrong even more. Well, this is this is something else we learned from Deborah Tannen's work, um, the linguist Deborah Tannen, 
And she she has a term for it. She calls it complementary schismogenesis, which is like a very that's a know, big word, <laughs> very big words. But really, yeah, what it means is that um, you know what you're trying to do is model for the other person how you want to be treated. So if you're feeling like you need space, you kind of shrink away from the friendship. Um, whereas the other person might really be wanting connection and so they reach out all the more and therefore yeah. you're both doubling down on the thing that you need rather than saying what does this other person need or want from me in this moment mm -hmm. and and what you think you're doing is showing them how you want to be treated and what you're really doing is making them like think why is she doing the opposite thing of what I what I need or want from her right now and um and yeah and I and that really resonated with us when we when we read read about that concept and we could see a lot of our own behavior yeah, so when I, when someone, someone ends up in a hiatus with a best friend and then they make an attempt to get back together and it's still weird, but they can't or they can't financially or they can't for time go into couples therapy. What do you think are some of the key ways that, you know, best friends in trouble can begin to reconnect? Oh, that that is a really good and and big question you know um and as Anne said earlier therapy is not viable for everyone it's yeah. expensive and it's also a time commitment that frankly a lot of adults just do not have with all the other responsibilities they have in their lives yeah you know i think that a good place to start honestly is just acknowledging to each other that it's hard and also acknowledging to each other that you are both trying to fix it because I think that, um, mm -hmm. you know, that is a kind of conversation that in other relationships, uh, we have a real model for doing. You have to do that in your romantic relationships. You kind of have to do that with your family, you know, because you're really not allowed to leave them. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you can, certainly, if they're toxic. Um, but, you know, I, I think that within friendship, there is, there is like a real timidity at saying like, oh, this is really hard, but also you mean a lot to me and uh, I'm not trying to break up with you. I just want to find a way to both be here together. Yeah. And it sounds really simple, but it's actually very, it's very hard. It feels very risky yeah. to do. And, you know, because I just think so much about every time that I am having a hard time with a friend, I am constantly having that conversation with myself, you know? And so the question really is what happens when you're having the conversation with them? Because it's yeah. a problem that you have to fix with someone else, right? And then, so I, and part of writing this book for us was really to highlight the fact that there is not, so there's not good social support for, for repairing this kind of relationship. You know, we give one example of what we did um, but we are also like very cognizant that this is, you know, it's, it's not scalable. It's not, um, and there still needs to be like a really big shift in the culture towards saying, okay, friends are people that are at the center of your life. And when it gets hard, you don't run away or drop them or, you yeah. know, kind of give them the shaft. This is, this is something that we have to learn how to do. And we are really hoping that by writing this book, it's a conversation that will become more and more public. Yeah. And, and I do think, what I loved about the book is um, that you do give a lot of, um, there are a lot of ideas here and a lot of ways that I think you get introspective about your 
relationships, your great relationships and the ones that have sort of frayed or the ones that don't seem to work. And, you know, I, I, I like what you're saying, that the first thing you do is acknowledge that there's a problem, not act like it's okay. But, you know, I'm reminded when I read about um, what you both did is you have to be willing to be vulnerable because maybe when you bring something up, they're going to bring something up that you're not that interested in hearing. Uh, I think that's true. And, you know, I also, I'm, I find myself thinking about, um, you know, on, in, in one of these other book events, um, someone mentioned that they had served as a mediator between two friends, you know, like they knew both friends, yeah. they knew that they both really had the best of intentions. And, um, you know, the, the way that we were feeling that we just needed another adult in the room to really draw out some of these things that can be hard to say of your own, on your own. Um, I think that sometimes it doesn't have to be a therapist you're paying, you know, sometimes a really um, thoughtful and, um, you know, well-intentioned friend can show up and just kind of be the one to ask some of those hard questions. And so that was a real revelation to me when, <laughs> when, when someone mentioned that to us. And I think, um, it's something that I will certainly think about in the future as well. So now that uh, the two of you have done this, you've written the book, what challenges do you still find in your, in your friendship or, or what tools did you develop in therapy to not let it go, get as derailed as it did? Wow, what a good question, Roxanne. Uh, <laughs> getting right to the heart of it. Uh, Are we in therapy right now? Is that what's happening? Now, um, here's our new therapist. Well, here's one thing. The pandemic is a really big challenge. Like we um, are, even though we live long distance, our relationship really has benefited from the fact that every couple of months we do have an opportunity to see each other, whether it's for personal reasons or it's for work. And this, I think this has been the long, I mean, I don't think so. It is true. It's the longest time span uh, that we have not seen each other. And, and that is, you know, that's its own challenge. We are both like everyone else on this Zoom, completely exhausted by the pandemic and the yeah. thought of, you know, making just mental space for it. Like, I'm sick of cooking. I am sick of cleaning. I am <laughs> right. sick of calling. I'm sick of surviving. Everything is hard. And so, um, you know, friendship is also, friendship is hard when there are so many other things that take, that take up um, that amount of mental space. Yeah. You know, one of the things I was talking to one of the women I'm the closest with that I've watched during the pandemic is which are the people you can't wait to talk to and which are the people that you feel like you don't have time to get back to, which has been I think interesting to think about also because these are tough times. And so the people you gravitate to having conversations with are people who you feel are safe, that you can learn from, that you can be honest with. And you, st I, I have found that you begin to realize who you can and can't do that with in a way that I might not have been as aware of. Have you found that? Yeah, I think the pandemic has been very clarifying for me in terms of which relationships are getting stronger and, mm -hmm. and which are are withering, you know, and um, and it's not it's maybe not exactly um, 
what I would have guessed in terms of like which friendships yeah. fit into which of those categories. Um, yeah, and it's interesting, you know, I think one thing is that the pandemic has changed our circumstances. And so a lot of friendships that are based, that were, you know, maybe reliant on circumstances that no longer exist, but hadn't gotten those deeper roots yet, have gone away. You know, I mean, I, I think that, you know, it's possible that some of those friendships might come back into my life if we are ever in an after times. <laughs> um, but it's very true that right now, um, the the circumstances of my life um, really kind of dictate doubling down on the people who I already feel very connected to. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I think in some ways that that mirrors a lot of other like life challenges or difficult things. You know, I, I, that's something that I hear people I care about express over and over, you know, when you go through something that is very personally challenging, it is, it can be very clarifying. Like who, yeah. who do you, who is in your corner and who, who do you want in your corner? Yeah. yeah. Um, we're just, we're, it just so happens we're all kind of doing that collectively right now at the same time. Yeah. So we've got a, just a couple of minutes um, left. I'd like each of you to share with us what you hope the book uh, will accomplish for readers. Yeah, you know, I, I, we, we have been so honored to tell our story and to, to talk about our friendship, but I, I am so, so, so excited anytime people tell us about their friendships because it is a relationship that is so central and important to so many people. And as a society, um, it would be so much better for us if we really elevated the conversation about friendship as a, as a social institution that is mm -hmm. transformative. And so, you know, I think my hope for the book is that people will read it and it will, it will make them examine the relationships that they are in. It will force them to, um, you know, to reconnect with people that they might have not connected with and that it will also force them to tell the people that are in their lives how much they mean to them because, mm -hmm. you know, that is really the first place where we need to start. We need to make it normal to tell your friends how much they mean to you. Yeah. And, um, and we just really hope that, you know, people will take this book and, and run with it and have those conversations in their own communities. Yeah, well, I, I would say for this reader, um, mission accomplished. Um, as a person who has taken great, great joy and pleasure out of my friendships, there were lots of things I learned that it made me, made me think about. And so I, I do hope it happens because I think when you feel connected to your friends, you're better able not only to be happy in yourself, but be out in the world in a more positive, empowered, substantial way. And, you know, we sure could use more of that, huh? Mm -hmm. So uh, I really want to thank um, both of you for writing the book, for taking the time. Um, I want to remind everybody, I, my book looks different because I have a galley, but uh, encourage you only buy this book if you want friends, have friends, or want to have good friends. Otherwise, <laughs> if you want to sit by yourself at home, you maybe you, you too should get the book. But it's, you know, it's a great book to give your best friends. And then, you know, say we can, you can have your own book club talking about it. 
and it could be the gateway for a conversation that you might not have been able to have. So continued success uh, to the both of you. Um, for those who want to listen to a fun podcast, it's called Call Your Girlfriend. Um, and the book is called Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. And we've been talking with Aminatu So and Ann Friedman. Thank you both again. Thank you so much Thank for, you having for having us. Thank you for having us. Bye. Bye. It's 8 o'clock. We're right on time. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.